Well, hey, friends, welcome back to another episode of Mike's podcast. It's good to have you with us again. And uh, I am really grateful to have a friend of mine on with us today. Um, Dr. Marcus Goody Goodlow is somebody I've gotten to know over the last several years. He and I served together um, at a church where uh, he uh, he and I would uh, share teaching responsibilities there some and got to know him and uh, got to also learn a lot from him that his PhD work is in uh, MLK studies, in a section of MLK studies. And so just have been so grateful for his voice in my life, the way that he has challenged me at times, some of the things that I've been able to learn from him. So really grateful. So Goody, thank you for hanging out with me today. Well, it's great to be with you and all your listeners. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, Goody, for um, our friends on here who don't know you, would you give just a little bit of uh, context for who you are? Even like, I think maybe even like our friends from Parkcrest might not know a little bit of your story of kind of where you grew up and and um, your how you ended up in ministry. Yeah, uh, thanks again so much. Honored to be with you today. Uh, product of uh, South Central LA, a place called Compton, California, just east of where I live now. And a single parent family home, grew up with my two sisters and my mom, was raised in the context of the church, faith, and uh, athletics was my way out of a lot of uh, opportunities to do wrong and get hooked up with the wrong things and wrong people and got a scholarship to play football in uh, offers from several schools, chose New Mexico. And that really started me on my journey. I always felt a sense, a deep sense of calling to help people, uh, even from the youngest times of my, my memory, uh, was a king novel scholar when I was a kid, would listen to his speeches when I was a young kid growing up every night. Uh, back then, you could get access to King's speeches by what they call cassette tapes. <laughs> and I remember listening to those tapes when I was in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And uh, we'll put them on my little Sony Walkman. It felt I wanted to change the world. The question was, I didn't know how I wanted to do that or wasn't settled on that. I had long been sort of spoken into my life prophetically that I would preach but I was also involved in, in you know, local politics and things like that. But settled on formally in the ministry and went on to school there and studied. And uh, yeah, married an amazing woman when I was in, had just finished graduate work. And we have two teens or young adults, Josh and Hannah. Hannah's 18, a graduate for the class of 2020, 2020 which will, is a class that will be remembered for many things. Uh, certainly among them in these difficult times. And then my son, Josh, is, is six, will be 16 next week. And so uh, we are just blessed to live here in the South Bay. And uh, yeah, I've devoted pretty much the balance of my life to issues of justice and equality and doing that in various ways, leadership development, synergy, in various ways with various organizations, a lot obviously through nonprofits like faith communities. But now in the last several years through... You know, businesses and organizations, including police departments. So that's kind of a, a little rundown on my on my journey there. Yeah, I mean, I know you do a lot. I know that you have done a lot with the police here in Long Beach, as well as in Redondo Beach, and um, with police officers um, all over Southern California, really. And so that's been a really interesting uh, intersection for you of pursuing pursuing justice and racial justice specifically even in those quarters how uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about what's happened recently but before we get to that like how did all of that start to come about for you and was that something that you like intentionally pursued did you intend to like be working in that arena you know really I you know wrote a book or a couple of books first book is called Kingmaker second book most recent books 2017 is called Habits and really habits is a conversation about leadership and sort of these rhythms or characteristics that leaders have, these habits that they have to, to bring them to success and wholeness really is based on the teachings of Jesus, his life anyway. But really, it's a wider conversation I've been having with business leaders, organization, university presidents, athletic departments and our police department, of which at that time I was sitting on what we call the police community engagement board, basically a non-binding board that, that uh, works with the police department as citizens, as representatives. We have constituents within the community to deal with 
issues that may arise. Uh, thankfully, we've been pretty, we've done, we've had no major issues here in Redondo Beach in my time. Certainly nothing in comparison to what we've seen play out in Minneapolis. But from that, the chief of police, uh, Keith Kaufman, who is a, not only a, a, someone I know, but we're actually very good friends, our families. We've broken bread together a number of times. We interface on leadership issues. But he then asked me, based upon their quarterly training, what I consider doing some leadership training. You know, police departments from all over the country are looking for new modalities. Part of the 21st Century Policing Initiative that President, uh, former President Barack Obama came out with, uh, these non-binding uh, recommendations that were put together by Blue Ribbon Committee. Sadly to say, parenthetically, those uh, that Blue Ribbon Committee and those initiatives, uh, which were highly recommended, were uh, discontinued or, um, uh, how should we say, not followed by the current administration. And boy, I tell you, uh, in retrospect, where we are now, uh, those sure appear to that sure appears to be a great misstep. But be it as it may, the leadership development time I did with our Redondo Police Department led to me becoming a chaplain, me becoming a chaplain. I'm doing more and more leadership conversations. And then, uh, you know, our chief asked me, uh, they were looking for new speakers for their annual Chiefs of Police Conference, which is Southern California Conference. They have these uh, conferences where chiefs from all over a particular region, in this instance, three counties, LA, Riverside, San Diego counties, and that's over 70 chiefs of police. So uh, this would have been my third year straight speaking. Uh, but um, everyone from Michael Moore of LAPD to Keith Kaufman to Robert Luna, of course, as you, I know you pastored, uh, they are at this conference. And so I've had a chance to speak. And so my talks with them are far different, uh, not because I'm great, but because of the content in which it is. My conversation is not about police work tactical aspects related to policy. You know, I'm in a room speaking to leaders. These are men and women who lead departments. Uh, Irvine, Chief Irvine of Torrance, the largest South Bay police department in our, in our area. Robert Luna leads the seventh largest police force in the state of California. That's about 1,300 plus sworn officers, a budget of about 240 million. Uh, and, but the conversation I'm having with these chiefs is about leadership, synergy, about culture, about environment, about uh, ethics, about habits, about developing habits. And so things that we saw play out in places like Minneapolis and other cities uh, with regard to policing issues within brown and black communities, uh, we dare not treat these as individual acts. Even what Chief Kaufman told me yesterday is part of the problem that we saw play out in Minneapolis uh, is not is not only in the tragic death of George Floyd, whose memorial, by the way, one of three memorials I just watched today. There will be more there in Minneapolis. I just watched it live on MSNBC. But the chief said it's a it was an issue tragic in its and of itself. To watch an officer snuff, snuff out the life of a man on the asphalt in the middle of the day, but to watch the other three officers, you know, codify this behavior, you know. Uh, in, in no way, uh, you know, try to impede or stop. And he says that's a cultural environment issue. And so th those are things I talk about. I talk about, you know, we use in sports. Hey, when you have a new coach comes into a losing program, we're going to establish a winning culture. Hey, we're going to businesses talk about a successful culture, the right culture. Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, Good to Great, talks about these things. Right. So police departments have cultures. You have a culture of, hey, if I want to get along, I got to what? Go along. And that's probably was the case in real time as we watch George Ford Floyd meet his maker over the span of eight and eight and a half minutes, crying out for his mother and pleading out for air. And for mercy, so a culture, a culture allows it. Just not the act of one man, but a culture allows that. Yeah, I, I, I want you to speak to that a little bit. But before um, before we do, would you, you went out to Minneapolis recently, and I want you to talk a little bit about that. And you and I haven't gotten to talk about this at all, other than like really brief text messages. So I would love to hear a little bit about like, why did you decide to go out there and what did you experience when you were there? You know, 
like most Americans, I watched as events played out on the television screen. I was sitting in my home and caught wind of the video on that Monday. And then by that Tuesday, you know, learning a little bit more details. And uh, I think Wednesday night. Wednesday night, I, I asked my wife. I was in my study, my office, and I asked my wife, could, you know, I just, hey, I want to talk to you a bit. I've been on quarantine. I haven't really traveled at all since my last travel was, as you know, you know, but your listeners may not know, I travel and speak for a living. I mean, I actually travel and speak to groups, businesses, and churches, and universities, et cetera, et cetera. But I haven't traveled since March. My last travel was the first week of March. So I haven't been out on a plane. I haven't. Yeah, I've been on quarantine like everyone else. So it was my family. And I told her that I needed her help. I needed her support. That I felt like a tweet wasn't enough. An article writing wasn't enough. A Facebook post wasn't enough. I said, even in the midst of enormous financial hardship and uncertainty, even in the midst of COVID for our family and as well as so many other Americans, that I felt compelled to go. And so I, I got on the phone. I purchased a ticket, secured a hotel room. And subsequently, Ubers, all on my own. And there were a couple of people, a couple of people, who, when they discovered I was going, wanted to try to help. And I, I give those people uh, public credit on my social media platforms. But one in particular who we know, she was the first. Our dear colleague, April Diaz, and her family said, hey, brother, we feel compelled. We feel led to help you. And that, that seed that was sown uh, really was a confirmation of what I had already decided. And it is if I needed to be any more you know, convinced I needed to go. As I was packing Thursday, I had a early, for my, my wake time, wake, wake up call was 4 a.m. Friday morning. I was to be on a plane by 6.15. And uh, I got a call, I saw a post from a guy named Jonathan Veal. Uh, you don't know him, but I've had a chance to mentor Several women and men in ministry over my life. He was one of those individuals that actually accepted his call in the ministry under my tutelage, which was a great honor. And we served together on a staff. He was a volunteer where I served on staff at Tony Evans Church from years ago, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. And Jonathan is about five years younger than me, maybe. And he put a, he put a post up on Facebook and said, miss, I'm going to miss you, my bro, something. And everything's trending. And so I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to make sense of that. It was nine o'clock my time. I called him at 11 o'clock his time. And, you know, I was like, bro, what's going on? And he says, man, I was in the lunchroom at seventh grade. In the inner city of the fifth ward, in walks this dude, six one. Everyone gravitates towards him. We become best of friends. We play on the same basketball team, same high school team, football team. We lose no more than five games in our high school football. This guy was one of the first to dunk in a game in our particular class. He said when we grew up in a housing project, this pastor wanted to do an alternative event for gangbangers other than like doing violent acts. He said, hey, let's come together and play basketball. They put on a basketball tournament. He said, man, did my friend help put it together? And he said another time the same pastor came through in, in this Fifth Ward housing project of Houston, wanted to do a baptismal. Got to get a portable big blow of baptism and needed help putting it together. My friend, Goody, man, helped put it together. He's telling me all these stories. He said, man, at some point, you know, we don't refer to each other by name. We just call each other by our jersey numbers. He was 88. I'm 42. He's telling me all this. And he said, and Goody, like you, man, I watched things happen on a Monday, not realizing when I woke up Tuesday, the flood of texts and updates on my phone because I saw the name. That I was too familiar with a name that I had known since I was in the seventh grade. He said, Goody, I watched on Monday not knowing my friend, George Floyd, my classmate, George Floyd's life being snuffed out. Wow. And when he retold, when Jonathan Ville told that story to me, um, it was beyond just a trip. It was a masa, a burden. It was... I must go through Samaria moment for me. I knew why for nothing else. I was attending, traveling, risking COVID, financial hardship and everything else. I was doing it for no other reason because of a Jonathanville, because I'm one person away from knowing George Floyd, because I'm a black man, because injustice was in Minneapolis. And it's not just in Minneapolis. 
uh, injustice is uh, on this issue, at least, is a thing for which we see across, has seen across our nation. It's Amir Aubrey, it's Botham Sean, it's Athena Jefferson, it's Breonna Taylor, it's Jonathan Farrell, it's Renisha McBride, it's Stephanie Clark, it's Jordan Edwards, it's Jordan Davis, it's Alton Sterling, it's Ayanna Jones, it's Mike Brown, it's Tamir Rice, it's Trayvon Martin, it's Sean Bell, it's Oscar Grant, it's Sandra Blaine, it's Philandro Castillo, it's Cordy J Corny Jones, it's John Crawford, it's Terrence Crutcher, it's Keith Scott, it's Clifford Glover, it's Claude Reese, it's Randy Evans, it's Yvonne Smallwood, it's Amano Diallo, it's Walter Scott, it's Erica Gardner, Eric Gardner, it's Freddie Gray, it's Christopher Cooper, and it's George Floyd. Wow. And what they all have in common, aside from meeting their death at the hands of police officers unjustly, None of the officers have been convicted. Just in case you thought this was about George Floyd, just in case you thought I uh, saw interesting now apology issue by Drew Brees, who still up until hours ago couldn't get why Kaepernick was taking a knee, talked about how he would never disregard our nation's flag. LeBron James and others publicly rebuked Drew Brees, who I love. A man of faith, a man who helped rebuild Katrina, won a Super Bowl. But my gosh, Drew Brees. And every other leader, every other pastor, every other celebrity, every other athlete, every other entertainer, every other business person who thinks this is about George Floyd. Nope, I've already heard it today. Someone put a post up talking about his character. Yep, he has a drug uh, record. Yep, he has an arrest record. Yep, he has multiple kids, had not been in marriage. Yep, all that. It does not matter. We live in a society where police officers are clothed in the words of Lincoln with immense power. They have the power of the state that in a moment they are given broad authority to end your life. If they feel their lives or the lives of a citizen, they are trying to protect. Great latitude. A particular Supreme Court ruling that doesn't come to mind now made that so. And so we affirm our police officers. We honor them. We celebrate them. Uh, but this issue, uh, this issue is one for which the African-American community is all too familiar with. And so there is a reckoning. So I went to Minneapolis to bear prophetic witness, as Cornel West says, to be a to bear a prophetic witness to uh, what I see, to what I saw, to what I have uh, experienced indirectly uh, through my friend Jonathan Ville, who told these stories of his dear friend. He sent me, and I can't, I won't give them to you, but he sent me posts. He sent me text images, text messages. He sent me images of he and Floyd at the prom together, hanging out <laughs> at, their, at a high school team photo after a game. And I, it humanized it in a way for me, you know, and people failed to remember you know, again, I was re I, I probably shouldn't have read it, but I read this post from an athlete, by the way. Uh, I don't want to say her name, but I respect her. She's a world class athlete, a white woman. And that's relevant here. But she put a post up of another African-American person basically saying, I hold a different view. I'm not going to raise up George Floyd as some great martyr. And she then began to tell all these things. And this person who I, I know, this athlete, basically a white woman says, I'm just trying to understand more. And this is a different perspective, one that I can appreciate and all oh, helps me understand. And I'm like, no. Particularly those of us who call our, ourselves followers of the teachings of Jesus. At what point in your worship service do you not acknowledge David? Go ahead. I'll wait. Hmm. Have you not looked at David's rap sheet? Lest we forget who Paul was when his name was Saul. I could go on. Have you looked at the Hall of Faith? Do we not remember Peter's initial posture in denying Christ? Do we not remember what Jesus's words were on the cross when he was between two thieves? One who was crying out, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do we not remember the men prepared to stone the woman? who was caught in adultery. George Floyd's death wasn't tragic because he was a good man or not a good man. His death was tragic because he's made in the Imago Dei. He's made in the image of God. 
And we dare not cheapen or lessen the value of something we did not create. Hmm. Currency has fluctuation. Money, you know, stock market fluctuates. A dollar today could not be worth as much tomorrow. A human life does not fluctuate. It's value. Goody, you were preaching there. I didn't want to. I didn't want to step on that because I was. Um, <laughs> it was powerful, and I need to hear that. And um, uh, you bore witness there uh, on behalf of so many people in going to that space. Would you like bear prophetic witness to us on behalf of what you experienced in Minneapolis? So I'm, gonna, I'm making available as quickly as we can. I'm so thankful to Billy Sanderson, a friend of mine. I, listen, I've been to Minneapolis five times at one point between I went there on behalf of a previous church I served at when my friend Billy actually lost his home, burned to the ground, escaped with his son in his arms, who was a baby at the time. The church I served at previously, I was, it, it was Mosaic. I'm grateful to Eric Bryant, Erwin McManus. Years ago, my friend Billy, who was my best friend at that time, house burned to the ground. He was a minister, a youth pastor. And I actually traveled to Minnesota. I'd already been to his wedding. Then I traveled again to literally give a offering on behalf of our church to my friend. Three thousand dollars. I'll never forget that. Surprised me. He didn't even know I was coming. I knocked, I knocked on his door. His in-laws knew I was coming. And then subsequent to that, I, I traveled to Minneapolis I've been to Minneapolis four times after that because I did training and leadership development with several companies there. I met with leaders in Minneapolis. I was familiar with that community in Elk River. And so getting there, I get immediately off the plane on a Saturday, go to my hotel. I don't even change clothes. I didn't brush my teeth. I got from the plane to the hotel, lay my bags down, open up my Uber app, and I was down uh, in front of the place where Floyd breathed, breathed his last breath by 2.30, 2.45 that afternoon. And I just walked. I walked among the people. I listened. You know, grief and pain, it has a smell. You know, the writer, John the Revelator in, in Revelations talks about these different churches, you know, Smyrna and Philadelphia and these different churches, you know, Laodicea. He talks about Smyrna. Even he says, you know, your, your works are like you know pleasing, pleasing fragrance. And I think pain, agony, people crying out, people at a sense of loss, people who feel as Howard Thurman in his book Jesus and the Disinherited talks about what is what is it like for blacks to live constantly with their backs against the wall. And so I'm walking and I'm seeing people who are living their lives constantly with their back against the wall in terms of issues of justice and equality. And I just listened. I talked to business owners and common people who were just walking the streets. I would say a third of the crowd at that time was white, probably more than that now. I saw young people, University of Minnesota, other colleges, they are rallying. And then in the subsequent day and a half, two days I was there, I came back again Sunday night. I came out Sunday morning and you're like this. I don't wear it often. I only do it to Mary and Barry, but I put on my collar. And I walked around with my priestly collar because I wanted to have an outward, visible expression of my role in that space that I was serving at that time. I heard stories. I watched a white man in his early 50s standing in front of a burned out structure that stood three stories, a building. Later learning it was a restaurant called the um, Talk of the Town. I guess it had an upper level. And he was there crying. I just asked him his name. And he works for actually a nonprofit cancer organization. So we had that immediate bond. I told him about my wife's battle with cancer. He said, I'm just here crying because this is the place where my friends own this business. This business has been around since I was a young kid, but they've only owned it for the last six or seven years. He says, but they lost everything. They can't rebuild their lives. I walked a row of Businesses owned by minority businesses, Ethiopian one, a Haitian, an Asian person, a black, a mixed couple, interracial couple, lost everything. That Sunday morning, I saw people coming out of their cars with brooms and dustpans and trash bags coming to clean up their community. 
But as painful as the destruction of property was, God knows I don't condone, condone such acts. It was, uh, it pales in comparison to the pain in which I saw and heard and felt people talk about what it was like to constantly live with their backs against the wall. To think that Ahmad Aubrey's killers, two citizens, one with his concealed license weapon permit or carry permit on suspension, by the way. Let's just set that aside. The idea that two white men could travel in a truck in the broad daylight in the cul-de-sac of a suburban city in Georgia and take the life of a black man while running, thinking he had, was the responsible person for some suspected theft or burglary. The fact that that event happened in February, that his mom was told back then he was killed because a burglary had taken the idea that officers showed up on the scene and called the district attorney and the district attorney told them to stand down, that those two men could be free. And it was only subsequent to the video that they were arrested. The idea that three officers until yesterday, we got videotape, we watching this play out. And so when I talk about racism and acts of race and racist acts committed in the with hatred and vitriol happening, it's not just an event. A system allows for two white men to gun down an African-American man in the streets of Georgia and to go unarrested for two months. That's a system. Do you think I could get in a car with Josh Goodlow and drive to Long Beach or drive to Santa Monica or drive to drive to uh, Manhattan Beach or Hermosa Beach, take literally justice in our own hands and in the life of a young white adult. And I get to go home and chill for two months. The thought of that is preposterous. You know why it is? Not because I'm good, but because in America. We've seen that play out in the reverse. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So, Goody, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, because because you're a Dr. King scholar and his name gets gets brought a lot into these conversations, obviously, and it should. And I want to let you speak about that some. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. And um, the first one I want to ask you is Dr. King wrote his letter from Birmingham prison to people like me, to the white moderate and um, and that letter so convicting for me. And I I would be curious, what would you say, what would Dr. King be saying to the white moderate today? What would he be saying to people like me today? Yeah. And, you know, I have to just really acknowledge you and your work, you know, elevating the the conversation uh, platform that you were doing for a period of time there and in your role as a former pastor at the church. And I remember you giving attention to that letter. And uh, how timely that letter is now, I believe, Mike, it is a it is the closest thing we have to an epistle subsequent to the scriptures. It's definitely the most prophetic work, I believe, written in the 20th century, smuggled out, by the way, on newspaper uh, clippings because King had no help. Remember now, when he wrote that, he had no commentaries, no helps, no dictionary, no reference materials whatsoever. And King wrote that letter in response to the critique that was taken out in a paper by eight white clergymen. They said things like, basically, you're an outsider, agitator. Could it be that the, and I use this term, historical term here, could it be that the Negro is in too much of a religious hurry? And so when King wrote that letter, it was really a response, a rebuke, basically saying, if I'm honest, it's not often I stop to answer people who are criticizing me. If I do, I, I could never go down with the work. But he says, this is really, in essence, personal for me because I had hoped that the white moderate, particularly those in the faith, would be my biggest allies. But the truth of the matter is they've been those who have precluded and hindered us the most. I'm here because injustice is in, in, in here and a threat and injustice, uh, a threat to justice anywhere. There's a threat to justice everywhere. And he goes on through a litany, of, discussing a litany of things and and saying that uh, basically uh, this cannot stand, this is intolerable, what's happening down here in Birmingham. And I would bring that to today. What he would say today is, uh, as he said in the letter, as I say and have said to you, I have said publicly, uh, I 
I'm greatly disappointed in white evangelical pastors in the United States of America. Let me let me let me um, let me see if I can make it any clear here. I am greatly disappointed in white evangelical pastors in the United States of America. Full stop. As King said, there can be no great disappointment where there is no great love. That's what he said in that letter. And so I love my brothers and sisters uh, in the cloth, although in this case, the majority of them would be men. That's a whole nother issue. But um, I'm greatly disappointed because of the. We did not have to be here. The scripture says in Ecclesiastes to everything, there is a season and a time and purpose under the heaven. You know, when one was a time for you to post solidarily was a time for you to. Have your hashtag go black on your screen, on your Instagram. You know, it's the time for you to bring in a goody good load to speak to your organization, to speak to your college, to speak to your university, to be on your podcast. You know, it was a good time to send me a text to say, praying for you, brother, encourage you, brother, love you, brother. You know, it was a good time for you to repent. I've had people to actually text me and repent. You could have started with Kaepernick mm. five years ago, six years ago. You'd rather express outrage about him taking a knee peacefully doing the anthem, which was written, by the way, with lyrics dishonoring people of color. That's a whole nother conversation. Have you ever read the lyrics of the, of the national anthem? Star Spangled Banner. So I'm disappointed. Why are you disappointed? Good. You sound angry. No, 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 no. I have a righteous indignation. I have uh, a I have a prophetic fire in my belly. As we've had men and women who've had opportunity based upon their influence and their platform to help advance us forward. Instead, they played it safe. Why? I don't know. Worrying about tithes and offerings, uh, worrying about polls, uh, worrying about uh, posing instances, meaning are you more worried about being a popular preacher? Uh, I, I told pastors, I told a group of pastor leaders the other day, they were asking us, Goody, what can we do? In this instance, a particularly white church. And I said, what? Show me your sermon series the last two years. What did you have to say to those protesters who stormed the Capitol white with assault weapons confronting the governor of Michigan and Ohio? I, what, what, what we, did you say something? I, I, I didn't hear you. You want to talk about buildings being looted? And so when we talk about uh, opportunities to speak into these situations, we've been grossly negligent at the highest of levels. You've had access to speak to power. And so who, who, who do you think brought David to his conviction about his transgressions? It was Nathan. It was a prophet, a priest, a preacher. Who do you think? Who do you think talked to Saul and informed him that the literally the throne the power, the anointing of God had been taken from his life because he dishonored God in disobedience. Who do you think had that conversation? And so let, let me make it real clear for you. Because as I told my wife, I have been very patient. I have been strategic in my discussions. Rarely do I use a public platform in a neutral setting to be as explicit. But let me just make it plain. If you have had access to people of influence and power, if you have had a visitation, an opportunity to engage the president of the United States as a white evangelical pastor, and you have not confronted this president on them being good people on both sides, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, a man who calls African countries s-hole countries, Man who says, I don't let black people count my money. These are these have given license for an environment. I already established the fact that it all starts with leadership and a culture and environment. You say, good, you're mixing the things. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. You have the Lord has shown you, oh, man, what is good. You're called to seek justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with God. In other words, you can't be prophetic when it's convenient. Your brothers and sisters have been hurting. You, listen.
listen, you can't be caught up in the trappings of the White House and the pop. You can't be impressed with the tea in China they serve you on. When Martin Luther King Jr. met with three presidents and one who would become president, Nixon, he met with Eisenhower, Kennedy and Johnson. He met with Nixon when he was VP. When he, Dr. King met with those men, he came with an agenda. You can't be showing up for a prayer breakfast and leaving there just having had some bacon and eggs. And yet people in your pews are still hurting, hurting from lack of health care, hurting from lack of access to jobs, hurting because we have a gross miscarriage of justice in our judicial system, hurting from because we have more weapons on our streets in this country than any other developed nation in the world. We have over 30,000 people who end their lives in handgun violence. All these issues. Oh, good, good, man, that's social God. You know, I'm just going to preach the gospel. You know, you're talking. No, 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 no. I never thought I would quote a pastor from this particular denomination, which I won't say. But this pastor, which is a very thriving movement, I'll tell you what it is offline, Mike. But this pastor, man, he said we have allowed abuses such as racism, particularly as white Christians, because we have presented a truncated gospel an abridged gospel. And it dawned on me. I was like, this dude. Now, they're wrong on a whole lot of other things, but this guy. But you know what? On this point, Mike, last point on this. We don't need I don't need your hashtags. I appreciate your text. Um, it's, 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 it's time to go to work now. I call up on every preacher, teacher, person who gives leadership in business, sports teams, Entertainment, you name it. If you are not an African-American, you have a moral obligation. If you follow the teachings of Jesus, you have a moral obligation to do some self-examination. And to see how you can advance the ball forward. I can give you some specifics, but I'll stop there. But this is a this is a. This is a defining moment in not only history, but in Christendom. Yeah, I mean, um it is hard and it hurts a bit to hear those things, but we need to hear those things. I feel like you're offering a prophetic word to us right now, and prophetic words are not always something that are easy and comfortable. They should make us feel a bit uncomfortable. They should shake us a little bit. They should like sit in us. And like when when something like that hits us, our often default response is to um, is to be defensive or to explain it away or to like, no, 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 but goody, you don't know about this or about this or about this. And I think um, if, if I can say something to my friends who are listening, if you just let that hit you and you just like sit in it for a minute, let it hit you. Don't explain it away. Don't don't give excuses. Don't say, but what about what about what about like just kind of let it hit you. And just, just, just ask like, why is this bothering me so much? Why is that hard for me to hear? What, what about that is difficult? Um, and before we move on from that too quickly, cause I, I would like for you to offer a couple of, of thoughts on like, how do we move forward? But if I could ask just one more thing about Dr. King, um, I, I, I see him being used a lot on social media right now to, both justify rioting and then to also push against the rioting. I see him being utilized by a lot of different, basically people utilizing him to, to justify whatever their vantage point is. Could you speak a bit about like how Dr. King might be reacting um, in this moment? Sure. Dr. King was a man who practiced nonviolence, full stop. If you are committing acts of violence, whether that's destruction of property or endangering the lives of law enforcement or citizens, in the name of George Floyd, you are not a follower. I say not only the teachings of Jesus, but you're definitely not consistent with the values of Dr. King. I want to make that unequivocally clear. But as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar stated eloquently early in his article, he wrote, and then which and I have spoken of, even what Dr. King has said, it's you know, riots are the language of the unheard. In other words, don't put a post up about Dr. King speaking about nonviolence if you are not ready to put a post up calling for the issue of justice and equality 
for which Dr. King was ultimately speaking to. You can't have more of an outrage about structures being burned as opposed to lives being taken unjustly. It's just you can't. You know, it dawned on me, Mike, when we started this podcast, we were kind of getting ready, and I was thinking to myself, what is it that I do that's uncomfortable for eight and a half minutes that I impose upon myself or that someone imposes upon me? Let, let, let me be very specific. George Floyd met his death, which took a span of over eight and a half minutes. If we sat on this podcast for eight and a half minutes, people would leave. Mm. They think something's mm. technically wrong. I don't think we have an appreciation for the gravity of what we're talking about here. And so what Dr. King would say is, hey, in fact, Dr. King went back to Memphis in part because the initial March in Memphis for work sanitation workers erupted in violence. They protested. People start rioting. And Dr. King told Jesse Jackson and, and, and Andy Young and Ralph Abernathy, his closest colleagues at the time, he said, I must go back to Memphis. And they were like, Doc, we got to get on to Chicago. They're after Detroit. And Dr. King said, I got to go back to Memphis because part of the headlines was that SCLC King, being its founder and leader, had led a march. That was of violence. And Dr. King said, that is not who we are. This march was not initially successful. And I can't allow that narrative to play. It's it's not who we are. It's not who I am. So King went back to Memphis. He's in his hotel room. He actually has a cold. He's sick. It's storming. It's raining the night before April 3rd. He goes to the hotel. He's at his hotel where our rally is happening at the church. And they say, King, you got to get here, man. There's thousands of people here. I know you say you're going to turn in for the evening. That's when he gives his last speech. I've been to the mountaintop. But King had returned to Memphis because he wanted to underscore the importance of nonviolence. But he understood people's anguish and pain. And so when people lash out, people do things that are not consistent or common with their character. So the Dodgers win, the Lakers win, and you have some knuckleheads going. I remember, I remember, I remember a few championships. I was born and raised in LA like you. I remember a back-to-back championship. It's like I remember property being destroyed and windows broken and people standing up on cars and banging stuff. And yeah, our team won. Who does that? What rational person does that? I don't know. Have you ever done something that was irrational? You were embarrassed about? As a result of your anger, am I saying everyone's doing that specifically running out because of that? No, but I am saying, I am saying two months ago, people were rioting randomly, burning up buildings through the streets. Right. When people have a sense of helplessness, hopelessness. When people live as though their backs are against the wall, as Howard Thurman says. And so. Rather than me try to analyze and give great consideration to these expressions that have ended in the destruction of property, I rather devote my time and energy to working with police departments. I'm thankful for ours. I'm thankful for Long Beach. I know Robert Luna has tried to do good things there. I'm going to continue. And no police department is is doing it right uh, 100%. Uh, but, you know, we can have, you know, I talked about the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. is a book that I recommend all your listeners get, White Fragility. But, you know, we can't have a, such where we take the posture because you are where the blue that you're immune be a police department that you are immune from criticism that you're immune from being examined that you're immune from being held accountable i back the blue okay that's great but you know what man if you if you took your wife mike to a restaurant if you took allison to a restaurant and and the service was crappy and the food was average and they brought the bill and it was costly you go on Yelp. At minimum, you tell your friends about the bad experience, but you know what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't say, all restaurants are bad, therefore I don't go to any restaurants. You'd be very specific. 
And so what we're saying is there's some specificity with regard to this issue and other issues. And so we want to point those out. But you can't be so guarded where you're thinking we're attacking everyone and every department and every police officer. No, we're saying they're bad police are bad police departments. There's systemic. It's, it's enough to get our attention. And in the same way, we have bad dentists and bad teachers and bad preachers and bad construction workers and bad mail clerks and bad grocery store clerks and bad customer service people who work for you name it. We have officers who fail to discharge their duties honorably. And the reason why this issue might real quickly, the reason why this issue is so critical that we have a close examination here is at the very most, when you, you and Allison go to a restaurant and it's bad, you'll lose some money. You maybe miss some time. But in this instance, you're talking officers, man. They have the power to end your life. That's a lot, man. We can't afford to have bad police officers. So you know what I'm saying? If, if, if you're a racist, if you're prejudiced, you shouldn't be in law enforcement. No one's no one forces you to be in law enforcement. This is not Israel. I just came from the Holy Land four months ago. They have mandatory military service there. We don't have mandatory police officing services here. Go be a construction worker. Go, go, go lay some bricks, man. Hang out at Trader Joe's. Go slay some groceries, bro. My sister, we don't we, listen, it's go get another job. And so I I I am I am I am done with uh colleagues, sisters, brothers, man, particularly those of the faith, leading these faith communities, getting up Sunday after Sunday, and their words having uh, a form of uh, a form of godliness, but no power, man. Jesus was not only concerned about life after death, he was concerned about life after birth. And if you are not addressing the issues of our time, as one great preacher said, you ought to have the scriptures in one hand and a newspaper in the other. In other words, you ought to be informed what is happening in our time, what is happening in our moment. This is a defining moment. This is what the uh, the, the, the the Germans called a zeitgeist moment, where it's the events, the meanings and uh, the beliefs, the ideas of the time that they're confused. They're conforming right here. And so the events of Minneapolis captured the zeitgeist of the 21st century. This issue of race and racism and prejudice and injustice is the singular issue of our time for the church. Specifically, there's no doubt. So um, for our friends who are listening, who are like just like waking up to this and realizing like, yeah, this is something I need to be invested. Somehow I need to like start understanding my contribution into this. I need to start understanding what I can do about it. Could you give a couple of thoughts on here's what it looks like to start engaging? And then also, I want you to um, also tell us like how people like know what you're doing, how people support your work, how people can even have you be a part of bringing, coming into organizations, churches, nonprofits, uh, companies, for-profit companies to help work through some of this stuff. So, so give us some, like, here's what you can do, but also like, tell us about how they can get in touch with you and support your work. Sure. Sure. And I appreciate that. Thank you so much again for, for having me just real quick, just some thoughts in terms of what you could do. As you know, I wrote an article uh, that came out on the platform through Dallas Baptist University, my motto, also where I'm an adjunct professor. I'm also a fellow uh, for uh, our institute there. And I wrote this article really in response to a friend of, of mine uh, by the name of Dave Bruscus. He's a pastor, white pastor. He pastors one of the campuses of the Village Church out of Texas, well-known well -known senior pastor there. And I wrote this in response to his question. And his question simply was, Hey, Goody, what what can I do? You know, what 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 can I do? And I, I believe Dave Bruscus, as so many are, uh, was serious in that question. And so it's entitled What You Can Do in Response to George Floyd. And I just run through a couple of these. I just wrote down one speak up. A silence has never been the recipient of moral courage award. You're not speaking up. Is making a statement. Uh, support support organizations that are on the front line. 
NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Equal Justice Initiative. Many of you saw the movie uh, Just Mercy. That's the work that they're doing. That's them. Sojourners. Support. I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the trenches. Goodygoodlow.com. Support what I'm doing. If I'm willing to get on a plane and risk COVID and rioting, support me in that effort. You're not willing to go. Support me to go. That's right. I said that. Go ahead and do. You can do that. I'll accept I'll it. I'll link to people. Goodygoodlow.com. As well. Love for people to support you. Yeah. In your work. Thank you. Read. I talk about reading, being informed. Don't stand up and talk about stuff you don't know. So you need to be informed. The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkinson. The New Jim Crow South. White Fragility. Between the World and Me. Taisa Coates, man. Michael Eric Dyson, his work. Slavery by any by another name. These are some great works. Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Uh, know what racism is. It's not just an act. Racism is a system. I've already touched upon that. Engage your faith. Faith without works is dead, James says in the scriptures. If you are a person of faith, you should look to the scriptures for guidance on these matters. But you also should lift your heads from out of the scriptures and see the context for which you live and are living. We don't just need you to Bible thump some scriptures. We don't need folks to have prayer visuals, but yet not have a plan and a policy and some procedures. Martin Luther King Jr. did more than march. He helped register people to vote. They had a plan. They put together strategic initiatives to help challenge governments and organizations and systems to change policy, where we could sit, where we could go to the restroom, where we could lay our head at night in, in public lodging. Read the letter from Birmingham jail by MLK. Read that letter. Lead. Romans 12, 8, the Apostle Paul says the gift of leadership, it is a gift rather. Leadership is a gift. The Bible says, Romans 12, 8, 12, 8, if you have the gift of leadership, lead with all diligence. So I'm challenging leaders to lead. Ask and listen. When's the last time you broke bread with a black brother, black sister, had their family over for dinner and said, tell me your story. Tell me your pain. Tell me your struggle. Resist. I call on all people of goodwill to resist acts of violence. I call on all people of goodwill to resist acts of violence. And then I would say, Mike, uh, you know, to to do what you can do. You know, uh, I, I'm on a call here not too many uh, hours with a school president, my alma mater. I'm, this morning, I think I mentioned my day started with two Zoom calls, one at six, one at seven thirty. The thing that all those people have in common I met with and talked with, they all have influence. They lead people, people who listen to them. And so I would say use your influence. What is it? What is it that the great uh, Spider-Man's folks with, with, with great uh, powers comes great responsibility? Yep. And so that's very specific. Right. So watch this. Who's on your leadership team doing inventory look right now? Who's on your elder board? Who's on your executive lead team? Who are responsible for the finances? Who's charting the course of your organization? Who's to your left and to your right? Is everyone in the room look like you? Who's your HR person? What's the criteria for the next hire? Who's leading your worship? Who's the front person for your business? Have you looked at your website lately? Who's the person that quote, remember Mike, when we were young, we used to take the test and it would say, which one of these is not like the other? And we have to look very closely. Oh man, uh, ooh, ooh, ooh. There, who is not like the other in your company, in your business, in your church? Are we, are, are we educating our people? Are we advocating for the least, the left out and the looked over? I saw the school president today, Scott Hagen from North Central University, stood and give a welcome and a speech in preparation of memorial for George Floyd. And he challenged every school president to do what they just announced today. They established the George Floyd Memorial Fund. He said even before announcing he had received over 50 plus thousand dollars from people. Now, listen, I'm not asking you to establish a George Floyd Memorial Fund, but you know what? You can give to the Goody Goodlow Scholarship Fund at Dallas Baptist yeah. University. It's established. It's right there. And that money will go towards helping 
students, particularly students of color, who exhibit the ethics and the teachings of, G of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in their lives. We literally are helping young people get to college, because I believe one of the challenges uh, that we have to address is issues of inadequacy when it comes to education. So who can you help? What Does your, does your church sponsor have an education fund? If you are an affluent church, a white church, a non-dominant, predominant African-American church, do you have scholarship funds? What are we doing for, for access for such? You know, who's on my leadership team? The next hire, you know, I, I was visiting with uh, Michael Bryant, Mike, Eric Bryant, who's at Gateway South Church of Austin. I think you know Eric. Eric Bryant used to be my boss, technically, at Mosaic. He told me on the phone... Yesterday, I spoke to the entire community of Gateway yesterday. He said, Goody, as executive pastor, I have the Rooney Rule in my hiring practice. Now, the Rooney Rule, Rooney Rule for those of you who don't know, it's named after Art Rooney, the late owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, which was an idea established and adopted by the NFL, which basically concluded that minority coaches are not getting opportunities. Heck, they're not even getting interviews with open head coaching positions. So the Rooney Rule says... It was put in act, enacted several years ago. It basically says, if you are an NFL owner, you can hire a head coach without minority coaches being in the candidacy. And so what they discovered was, hey, how are we going to improve minority representation within the circles of coaching? And so I would call on every church leader, have the Rooney Rule. Are we interviewing people of color for our small group pastor, our worship pastor, our executive pastor? Who's your HR director? Who's the accounting firm? Is there a reputable African-American firm we can hire to do our books? And he said, Goody, what does this have to do with George Floyd and all that? You know what it has to do? Dr. King said, we fear each other because we don't know each other. We don't know each other because we don't spend time with each other. And here's what that means to me in this context. I think it's hard for me to put my knee on your neck if I know you. If our kids play together and I'm the police officer, but yet I coach your son and daughter in the Little League yeah, yeah. Soft, uh, softball team. I think it's hard for me to bring violence to you unjustly if I shop next to you at the Whole Foods or get my medicine at the right right, right aid where I see your daughter works. Or if I worship next, next to you in the house of God. Or if I'm running on jogging on the trail in the local park and I see you, be, I'm familiar with your face, may not remember your name, but you know what? I see you. Ninety three percent of those serving on that force in Minneapolis of the law enforcement, 93 percent live outside of the place they police. One of the things in community policing in Barack Obama, President Barack Obama's Blue Ribbon Commission that they concluded. Long Beach, by the way, adopted it, adopted the principles from the commission. Long Beach is woke. One of the things they can concluded, community policing. We have to have police who are of the community, policing the community. We are the community leading the way in law enforcement. That's our model here, Redondo. In other words, we don't have police officers driving out to come into work from long distances. I recognize finances are at play in some, but you know what? Some departments give incentives. They give incentives to their officers. I believe churches can give incentives. Businesses can give incentives. We want our CEO. We want our HR person. We want our worship leader. We want to live in the context in which yeah. they serve. And so that familiarity has you to go, hey, I recognize this brother. Hey, I recognize his sister. I'm going to give this person the benefit of the doubt. That unfamiliarity is not in play. And so when we don't know things, we don't know people, we fear. And so that fear then is acting out in various ways. Sometimes it's simply a woman walking across the street to avoid me, as in the case for me last a year and a half ago. In other cases, it's an officer who kneels on the back of a neck of a man on an asphalt on the ground in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for eight and a half plus minutes until he breathed. His last breath. George Floyd narrated his own death. Think about that. He narrated his own death. Crying out to a mom who was already dead. I believe he saw his mom in that moment of transition. Goody, you have um, 
offered us a significant challenge. You have, um, it was goody uh, unfiltered today, which I appreciate. I, I have had moments where I get to experience that at lunches and stuff with you. And I know that you have uh, been really, really thoughtful about the way that you talk about these things publicly. And um, so I think it even says something about the reality of the moment that we're in and what that is doing within you that that you're kind of taking those filters off and saying, like, I'm, I'm just going to say it. I'm not like I'm tired. I'm tired of like kind of dancing around it. I'm tired of trying to be a little bit cautious here. I'm trying tired of trying to like kind of cater in a certain kind of way. And I'm just going to say it. And, um, and those of us who are white, those of us who are white leaders, like we need to hear it. We need to let it hit us. And, and like I said earlier, we need to not just immediately react with defensiveness, but like hear it and receive it and, and sit with it a bit and then be challenged to do something. And so, um, I'm going to provide links to all the things that you've mentioned here. I'll put that all in there. Links to to you and to your work, to your social media stuff, to, um, to goodygoodlow.com, to all of those things. Goody, I'm so grateful to, um, that you spent time with me today. I know you spent time with all kinds of people over these past few days. And so I'm really, really grateful for that. And I'm also really grateful for your friendship. I'm grateful for the ways that you've challenged me and the ways that you've been a friend to me. So thanks. Well, thank you, uh, Mike. And thank you so much for this opportunity to speak and and I, my heart is one of not just reconciliation, but uh, justice and fairness and equality for all. I believe that's consistent with the scriptures. And and I believe that the light and love of, of the teachings of Jesus uh, are there for us as a, not only for us to live our lives, but also to live in community with others. And so my hope is that all your listeners will, uh, will do some self-examination, some real internal uh, examination in terms of what they can do to help advance a message of faith, hope, and love to those who desperately need it. And of course, in our nation and our world. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Grace and peace to y'all.